0: Smoking. Oh, uh, doctor? Uh, yeah. Engineer. Engineer. Engineer, really. Engineer, engineer. What in the um, the the military? The army? Huh? Uh military? Uh, wait, 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 Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's when it It's an Uh um mm, um mm, um mm, yeah. Uh militia. Uh militia. Военный. <laughs> Нет, не военный. Я. Вода. Вода, вода. Вода, вода. Вода. Окей, вода. Вода. Okay, вода, 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 вода. Вода, вода. 22 года. Oh, главный инженер по водоснабжению. Куйбышевская водоочистительная станция. 22 года. Вода. So you... mm-hmm. Where you, you, you regulate the the pressure in the water? So, it's, uh, it's very... What the... What the... Google. Water.
1: Lee, you don't speak Russian, do you? I do not speak Russian. Uh, I don't really know anyone who could help me translate. Though we do have a mutual friend that we have asked perhaps to help us translate some of this episode. But that is... um. Perhaps incoming or inconclusive, whether or not we will have a translation, but we're hoping to translate this scene, at least, because this is a, I haven't, I I think Joel is obviously misunderstanding what's going on. I certainly have no clue.
2: I want to say, I, I don't think there's a such a thing as a, a water engineer. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I, I think what he's saying <laughs> is like the water pressure, like he's dealing something in, in that ballpark. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> My best guess, and I don't, again, I don't think this is right because I was kind of looking into it just now, uh, concerning this clip is he talks about, Joel brings up the military, mm-hmm. and uh, then the, I think someone later, someone later in the plane calls this man captain. Oh, he's captain. got that hat. Yeah, he's got the hat. So he's some sort of captain, but Joel mentions the military. This man says, um, vil, he says some some words starting with V and Joel doesn't understand it, and mm-hmm. then he changes to wada or whatever. Like, that's what he's... Vada, wada, wada. Mm-hmm. It's like, sounds like water. So my guess here is, is like, maybe he has some connection to the military, but he's trying to explain like a location near water. It's like, I was based in... Again, like, this is just the problem with uh, what's lost in in, you know, communication breakdown here, because... Joel thinks he's having this conversation about water engineering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they I think it's interesting because these two characters do get along and they have some connection. They share vodka. They share uh, lard on rye bread mm-hmm. yeah. or something. But none of that um, is, is a verbal connection. So. Well,
2: I like what you said about the lost in translation part about mm-hmm. the miscommunication because I think that that actually goes in line with the Joe and Maggie plotline. But before we get into that, (laughs) let's talk about us. We are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. We are here to talk about the 1990 television series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee.
1: My name is Lee, and I'm joined here with Charles. We're here together in the same room, you know, in New Orleans, having a great time. And um, yeah, we just sat together and watched the episode in my living room um, you know, I took a couple notes, Charles, you've got some mental notes. We're kind of, we have the episode on standby that we can scrub through, but, um, yeah, this was a fun experience. Why? I mean, it always, it's always a fun experience to watch an episode with you, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, I've seen the show a number of times. The sixth season I've only seen once. I remember this episode, uh, and its importance, uh, particularly to the Joel and Maggie, Uh, overarching narrative so I was excited to watch it with you and it's just there's it's a there's a lot of interesting things even apart from Joel and
2: Maggie that I could just tell when we were watching you're like wait what (laughs) yeah no it was absolutely well like one is like I don't think I'm in like the proper headspace right now to (laughs) be to be watching such a kooky episode Mm -hmm. like I was trying to mentally process (laughs) everything that was going on and I think okay so I think that In a way, it's actually a pretty good episode and what they're trying to set up. And what I like about it, the big pros of this episode, I've always liked this about uh, specific episodes in all television shows, is whenever you take the leads out of their natural environment Mm -hmm. and place them somewhere else where they're out of their elements and they're trying to contend with it because then it becomes – a character writing exercise to mm-hmm. see how your characters are going to adapt to it and yeah. whether or not the audience buys into that characterization so like when we see joel go over there and freak out in a classic joelism we're like yeah i can totally see him doing this like this makes right. sense and i think that him and maggie arguing over this and coming to a conclusion some sort of arc in themselves is really elegant because it's happening in a place that is not sicily mm-hmm. and had they remained in sicily this problem never would have came out, but then the solution also never would have came. So taking them away from Sicily was a good play right there in order to have this arc of sorts.
1: Yeah, we've kind of talked about this before where the town of Sicily is, you know, quote-unquote, a character on the show. It is so much part of this show. Mm -hmm. So when we take that away, it really opens up a lot of new possibilities. Not, I'm... I'm not asking for episodes where, you know, I want to be in Sicily with them. But every once in a while we get a treat where, you know, we didn't expect it, but it's like, wow, yeah, we, if we can take them out of this habitat, mm-hmm. lots of interesting things can happen because what we hold on to then is not the brick. It's not K-Bear. It's like these characters are what we're holding on to. Right,
2: right. Yeah, they're the raft right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk to me about who wrote this and who directed it. All right, so the episode is called Full Upright
1: Position. So I guess referencing when you're on a plane, you got to, what is that, keep your seat back in a full upright position. Mm-hmm, you don't yeah. want to lean that. Uh, so we're on a plane in this episode. It, it fits in there. This is the seventh episode in the sixth season directed by Oz Scott. He also directed the season 5 episode Northern Hospitality. Okay, that was the episode where Joel has he made some social faux pas and um you know, he 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 decides that he's going to throw a party to sort of apologize to other people at other you know, accept not accepting dinner invitations or Uh, The situation was like, he always goes to other people's dinner parties, but he never throws on himself. And Maggie's like, you got to understand that's like part of the culture here.
2: Yeah, I remember that episode. (laughs) That that like, uh, really quick tangent. Like there's like an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when they Mm -hmm. have like a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. And it's a dinner to resolve all of their differences with with the antagonists that they made along the way, <laughs> um, because they fear <laughs> retribution. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and they're like, they get them to like sign a contract to be like, "All right, we signed this, we're squared." They're like, I don't want to sign this. Stuff. Like, I don't. Our our beef is not settled right here. <laughs> so that just reminded me of Joel just trying to trying to come clean with all the townsfolk right there. Yeah. Also in
1: that episode, Shelly like wants to go back to Canada. And hauling oh, comes the in, comes on, the, in? The, oh, yeah. on the ski. I remember that <laughs> uh, jet ski thing. So that that was directed by Oz Scott. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this before when we talked about that episode, but he's done some a bunch of different TV stuff. And then there's something that I remember noticing back when we did that episode. His like first, I don't know if you call it claim to fame, but like one of his first big successes was a short film called Mister Boogity, which is available on Disney+. Plus. And I remember, I think I started watching it, but really, like, literally two or three minutes just to kind of see what was going vibe. on there, yeah. Uh, but that's interesting. I think there's some spinoffs of Mr. Boogity, but I've never really watched that. But this is the guy who made that. Uh, the writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, of course, they're all over this series, and they do continue to work on The Sopranos with David Chase. And the air date was November 7th, 1994, And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, this is, you know, this is kind of early season six still, you know, if we think about in totality, the end of this season is going to be what? 23 episodes. Let me just double check 23. And, you know, we'll get into this, but, you know, one of the big milestones of this episode is Joel proposes to Maggie You know, they're going to get married or I guess by the end of the episode, they say maybe we'll just live together and figure it out. But there's, you know, something's happening uh, in a big way between them by the end of this episode.
2: Right. That's one of the plot lines of this one. The other two are, uh, well, okay. so one is grounded, definitely grounded. The other one (laughs) should be grounded because they're dealing with electricity Mm -hmm. and it's crazy. That plot line is like (laughs) bananas right there. So like uh, yeah, that gosh. was the
1: one when we were watching. You're we, like, wait,
2: what? What's going on? We saved that one for last, right? That was just <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't okay. you can't do that one first, and then you try to come <laughs> back. But, all right, let's talk about some
1: sensibility here. <laughs> That's a good idea. We'll we'll do that plot line last. I remember while we were watching it together, Charles, I was asking you like, what do you think? Because I have some ideas, but I think we in watching it together, we came up with uh, some some pretty interesting conclusions. But I I kind of really like. It is so strange, but I kind of like where where we took that idea by the end. We'll talk about that as the last part of this episode. But the first storyline. Let's, do, uh, let's do Maurice. Yeah, Maurice and Maurice. Maurice yeah. Dutton. Maurice double. Yeah. Maurice double. squared. <laughs> so, you know, the, the beginning of that plot line in this episode is, I believe Maurice is like waiting for the bus to come into town Hauling, Hauling's in this episode a couple times, pretty much just to like stand by Maurice and like be a character so Maurice can talk about things. Yeah, I think there's even a couple lines in this episode where Hauling just kind of like, not necessarily repeats, but just reiterates the exact thing that Maurice says. So there's literally literally just like another character there for Maurice to talk to and uh, vocalizes an internalized thought process. But Hauling's like, oh, yeah, you're waiting on someone. And Maurice explains, yeah, we've got uh, my cousin Maurice, Maurice Dutton. Uh, comes from like a, in Maurice's uh, mind, it, it's uh, the Dutton family is not the greatest of, uh, you know. They're kind of he kind of treats them as I guess you, I guess you like even scum really. Like he kind of dishes on uh, Maurice Dutton a lot in this episode, and almost seems to take glee just making fun of this kid. And you know, Hollings like, oh wow, the Duttons, and Maurice is like, yeah. You can tell Maurice is kind of ashamed to uh, to admit that. Maurice Dutton is coming to um, stay with him. But he mentions that, you know, the the family named Mar- the, how do we describe like Maurice Little? <laughs> like they named- uh,
2: Little Maurice. Li- they named Little Maurice. And then we got Big Maurice or uh, Maurice. Medium Maurice, whichever one you would like. I like Little Maurice and Big Maurice. Right, so right, let's do that. So Big Maurice says that they named
1: Little Maurice, Maurice, because he's like, maybe they thought I would take a liking to him. Which I will like. I'm going to make him a proper man, and he also talks about like uh, leaving his legacy. He needs mm-hmm. someone. He mentions Duquan has his own thing in Korea, so that's not going to be an option. So uh, perhaps Maurice Tutton will fill that role.
2: Yeah. So he's trying to shape him up to be his heir, right there. Uh, but you know, quickly gets off the bus and. We, as audience members, understand it. it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's probably not coming true. <laughs> like, that's probably not <laughs> happening this episode unless some <laughs> drastic changes happens in this man's life. So, uh, he's just like a sweet little uh, guy, you know. He's wearing like a brightly colored polo shirt and doesn't really have a coat. He grabbed the wrong bag and everything. And Maurice really wants to shape him up, but he's not willing to tell the other townsfolk, maybe pump the brakes. You know, we'll see how this turns out. Let me put him to work. And he does in the next scene, he gets him. Uh, Well, actually, I'm sorry. Right before he does, he has like a small little scene with mm-hmm. Ed. Right. So mm-hmm. Ed is there and they're at Maurice's house. Ed's still over there being the handyman, cleaning up his place. Mm-hmm. And little Maurice asks him like a curious question. It got me thinking of more nefarious things, but it turned out to be more innocent things. Mm. He's asking him about his uh, net worth. It's like, well, how much is he worth? And Ed says, well, like, let me put it this way. He says that he's richer than Lester Haynes. And Lester Haynes is worth $17 million and mm-hmm. uh, so that blows little Maurice's mind and gets him to study a little bit harder because he's having trouble mm-hmm. he's having difficulty reading these textbooks that Maurice put him to which is like I don't think that's like a really good way <laughs> to inoculate someone to your, he just gave him like five <laughs> different textbooks he's like get yeah that's,
1: he's got all these assigned readings the scene opens with him being like ah, Ed I, I'm more of an outdoors type like I don't like this I have so much assigned reading from big Maurice but I didn't think about that. You made you made a good point that what seemed to be maybe nefarious—he wants to know how much money Big Maurice has—maybe is just a tool that the writers use to show, like, once Little Maurice understands that Big Maurice, uh, you know, all this boring stuff with trees and timber—it's uh, it seems boring now, but that turns into over seventeen million dollars worth of a uh, fortune. You know, if you can turn that to a business,
2: is this business only? Uh, burgering and trees? I don't think
1: so. And you know, this is interesting. I was thinking about this when we were watching it because we never really get too much of the inside scoop on Maurice's like business, Mm -hmm. his net worth because we know he has a radio station. We mostly know him as a communications man because he has like a newspaper in one episode of Dateline Sicily. He has uh, the radio station. He wants to like build uh, what is it? Like resorts and things. He wants to like expand and build but I don't think we've ever seen his, like, lumber uh, business. But that's part of his fortune, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's part of his business empire right there. And puts Little Maurice to work on that. And little Maurice shows up to work. He's in a shirt and tie. Mm-hmm. And he has him go on the television. He is uh, Big Maurice. Tells mm-hmm. Little Maurice, say, like, I need you to, like, I was talking about it with you. Like, I. I I get the context of what's happening in the scene, but I don't know the I don't know the details. It looks like he just wants them to place an order, yeah, for like some lumber right there.
1: Something's like he's like people are going to call you and they're going to want to know the prices of like the top highest quality, which I think he's called it peeler or peeling something, mm-hmm. the highest quality timber, uh, as opposed to like pulp. I think he calls the lowest in a later mm-hmm. scene. So he's like you got to give them the proper prices and let them know how much if they want to order this much, you know you have to make that uh, calculation for them. I guess they're they're ask they're going to be asking little Maurice for quotes. Yeah, and he needs to fill that out.
2: And little Maurice turns out to be really handy with the numbers mm-hmm. and like just really churn it out, good with the multiplications right there. Big
1: Maurice is like trying to like show him an example and like he starts punching it into the calculator, but little Maurice can already uh, you know spit out the numbers before big Maurice can finish the calculation. I
2: don't think that's like a sign of genius, dude. That just means no. you're like really good with arithmetic in your head. Right. Which is, I mean, I think is a pretty important skill
1: to quickly do this over the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, it would, I do think that Maurice is uh, correct and like taking a shine here to be like, Oh, like he's not just like someone who would, uh, cause he, he comes from like someone who worked in gas stations. Yeah. It's not just the kid who's going to fill up your tank. He can like quickly sort numbers well, can he, though? <laughs> well, he there is, like, a misstep later in this. Uh- well,
2: I think it's just, like, he had the wrong base calculations. Yeah. Like, he had the wrong, yeah. in, he inputted the wrong numbers. Yeah. And I, I think what they're trying to say, what the, what the screenwriters are trying to say, is that this kid has a lot of potential. Yeah. So, in Big Maurice's eyes, he's thinking, like, all right, we got something here, diamond in the rough. Right I think I can... <laughs> Turn him into something. I think that's what happens in the next scene with him in Holland, right?
1: Yeah. Well, which, uh, what happens in that scene? Which one? I'm looking I through. I think that's the one where he talks to him and says, like, oh, like. Yeah. He's like, you know what? This guy's like a crackerjack mind. It's going to work out, maybe. Mm-hmm. Let me see. Because I know there is a scene where. <laughs> Like I just wrote down, he's constantly dissing on. Uh, oh, little, when little he button. shows
2: up to work, yeah. he's like
1: two minutes late. Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and then he don't like, make
1: excuses, and I won't accept them.
2: Yeah, and he like walks to the place, and he's like watching him walk. He's like, look at that guy with his his gait. Yeah, and it's he's like, like
1: what a what a loser. Look at how he walks. He's like <laughs> he's just
2: walking he's down just the just street, like strolling, He's like having a good day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: it's so mean.
2: Someone is like absolutely trashing you on the other side of the window.
1: I wanted to also throw this in because this is from an earlier scene when Big Maurice is waiting for Little Maurice at the bus stop. He tells Hauling that the Duttons are a bunch of layabout 'er ne'er-do-wells, gas station jockeys that never own the station. So, you know, just like people who never amounted to success in his eyes, in Big Maurice's eyes, you know, they just work hard labor and never own a thing for themselves, like their own business. But... um. That's what that's what he wants. This this is kind of what is the breakdown between Maurice and Little Maurice. Later is just like their different desires. And I I don't want to jump too far ahead, but they kind of uh, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Let's let's continue with um, because you were talking about. There's a scene where Holling is kind of excited. Sorry, Maurice is very excited now that he has Little Maurice Dutton uh, able to like you know rattle off these numbers. Is this the part where Maurice gets the phone call or is that
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the same part. Yeah, so like really quickly, you know, he has a conversation with Holling and he says, yeah, I can really fan that spark into a flame. I think that I can turn it into something. Very curious language right there. It just occurred to me because that's like like an element of sort, like a flame. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is like another power of nature right there. Mm -hmm. And Mm he uses those analogies a lot. So I thought I was really curious out there. Maybe small little connection toward the crisp plotline, But yeah, uh, scene ends with him getting a phone call saying like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you see his expression turn south really quick. And then I, I think it leads directly into the next scene, which is in the brick yeah. and little Hollings with Ed and their. Oh, sorry, little Maurice. <laughs> I was like, little Maurice. Lil Lil M yeah. (laughs) Lil M's having breakfast with Ed and he's lost his appetite because it's clear that he's not having a great time Mm -hmm. trying to do these heady activities of reading and trying to digest all the stuff and this is where we learn that he actually miscalculated because Big M comes in (laughs) storming and just I I, I was surprised they said this I want to say it's in Ruth Ann's own words Mm -hmm. like tore him a new one Oh, uh, the actual, that that. the okay. actual phrase.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like the censors are like, what? Are, what is the? What new thing? What is it? What are you guys talking about? What's new and what's one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are each of these? It's like, nah, don't worry about it. This is this. Uh, this is fine for TV. I think that's yeah. I don't. I don't, I couldn't imagine them trying to censor that, but who knows? Um. Yeah, you're right. Like uh, Little Maurice quoted the price for pulp instead of uh, basically. He made it so that they were going to be selling the highest quality lumber at the lowest quality price. But it turns out little Maurice could already factor that uh, he he cost big Maurice I think eight thousand five hundred dollars. Like that's another like he quickly Mm -hmm. factors that and said he's great at multiplication. Remember, and Maurice is like, nah, this is you're you're doing like a terrible job. And as you said, tears him a new one, and it's in front of everyone. We get shots of the other townsfolk sitting around just watching and listening. So we got Ruthann, Hauling and Shelley, Ed. Big Maurice is continually just like yelling and yelling and goes on for a while. And we get these specific reaction shots uh, broken up throughout. It's not just like cut from Big Maurice to Little Maurice. We see all the people just standing by, listening, not not saying anything, not doing anything at the moment. But I guess what we're um, to take from this is that Maurice should have like, sat him down and went over this with him. I mean it is a lot of responsibility for this little kid to have. Instead, he just uh, like as I said, like Big Maurice takes glee and demeaning little Maurice in front of the entire town.
2: Yeah, and that brings us to the next scene, which is in Ruth Ann's store. And Maurice is there trying to buy some goods. Um, I think he tries to like, purchase some beef jerky. And Ruth Ann says like, here you go. She wraps it up, just tosses it onto the counter for Maurice to retrieve and big M's got the idea that she's pretty mad at him and he tries to tell her like well don't try to play this with me I know that if Ed messed up in a big way you would totally chew him out don't try to say that like I'm being the bad guy and Ruthann says I would definitely chew him out but not in front of everybody that does something to somebody else you can't do that and Maurice just takes insult to that because he thinks that like no, like, I think that you should be able to handle this. If you can't take some heavy criticism, then you just you should have just avoided it in the first place. And then he asks her what he's doing now, and she says that Little Maurice is being a gas station intended right there. And my problem with this scene is that it didn't feel like a whole lot of time passed between him getting chewed out in the bar and him getting a new job. I really confused me because it it seemed like he just immediately went to the gas station and got a job. Yeah, you're right. It's like what how, how many days have passed and What well, the thing is is like, wait, well, maybe not a lot of days had passed because are right. we to assume that Joel and Maggie's plotline is also within the same timeline? Because that's only like a day. It kind of
1: is because they come back at the end of the episode, right? They do come back to Sicily. So So you're (laughs) telling me
2: in a day, this kid like went to the gas station, got a job and started working on cars. I
1: don't know. You know, this is kind of like a weird, like Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk, like multiple (laughs) timelines coalescing.
2: (laughs) So Maybe not even in the same season. It's happened like
1: before Joel and Maggie were dating. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, it's like Joel and Maggie's plotline. line happens at the very end of whatever this other plot line is with Chris and then this other plot line with little and Big Maurice i whatever this is I don't know exactly how this works out, but I think you're right. It does seem like a very short turnaround uh because I would imagine not only is little Maurice going to work at this gas station, he's already like left Big Maurice's house as soon as they have that sort of blow up in the brick. Little Maurice is now probably going to live in the shack behind the gas station, which we figure out later. So, yeah, I mean, I think the episode wants us to believe that this just happens, like, pretty immediately. He's now, he's working gas station attendant.
2: Yeah, and we see him working there in the next scene. Maurice comes and pays him a visit after he's calmed down. Says, like, you know, I'll just watch over you more closely. Well, you should come back in. We got a lot of work to do. And Little Maurice says, like, no, I, I just... It gives me such a stomach pain. Like, it gives me fear and anxiety to go head into these books. And Maurice tries to counter back by saying, like, that's such a small thing. You're going to let a stomach, like, you're going to let a tummy ache stop you from operating a multi-million dollar business right there? Like, that is ridiculous. And then for little Maurice, like, yeah, like, my, my own well-being, like, trumps wealth to me.
1: Yeah. He says too much stress. And then I think by the end he says, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, f- I think I'm better off in the garage. Like he just, that's his place. And that's what Maurice would view. It's like, oh, they're, they're kind of like the Duttons are lowly mm-hmm. and that's their place. Um, So that's what's, what we leave this scene with is sort of this dichotomy between the two. Maurice has his ambition and the Duttons, you know, little Maurice. Uh, are, are not ambitious at all. They're content to just be confined to gas station attendance for the rest of their lives. Earlier in the episode, Maurice had like a, a glimmer of hope where he was saying, you know, I thought it was uh, all about your genes, but I realized if you put someone in the right environment, such as, you know, teaching little Maurice how to do all this uh, orders and stuff on the phone... Perhaps we can build them up into my empire or whatever.
2: Yeah, I actually think that's a very fitting metaphor right there. Because little Maurice works on a gas station and gas is used to power vehicles to move. But he himself is not moving. Mm. And Maurice is working in this lumber business in which he's providing wood for other individuals so they can build something and yeah. he's hoping to build little Maurice into something right there. I might be reaching a little bit too much with this metaphor, but I, I do think the first part makes sense. <laughs> yeah. The gas station one is, I think is kind of fitting. He himself is just there to supply the gas. Never the one to like actually, uh, never Move, actually the one yeah. to go out from his little place. Right. Well, that's definitely
1: not the end of their storyline. We get a scene with Big Maurice at the brick. It's like late at night. Everyone else is gone except Eugene, who's sort of like mopping up and packing up. But he doesn't kick out Maurice. You know, Maurice is sitting there monologuing on the uh on the bar. <laughs> it's really funny. Maurice is like obviously been drinking a lot. His hair is uh, sort of uh, his hair just looks funny. It's just like tussled. And um Ed is entertaining. I' just like kind of listening. To what Maurice has to say. Hey, I messed up. I meant to say Eugene here instead of Ed, which is mostly talking about how he had, Big Maurice himself had such a strong ambition early on in his life. And I think it's, he's saying this to sort of contrast with he doesn't understand little Maurice or the Duttons or like people like little Maurice. Like Maurice tries to open up to Eugene and basically ask Eugene, like, didn't you ever want anything when you were younger? Like, what what were your highest ambitions? You know, it's like, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to do this. I wanted to be rich and famous. And what did you want? And Eugene says, well, Maurice, like, you are rich and you are famous. And like, you know, people know you. You got your name in the encyclopedia. Like, that's something. Uh, you made it. You know, and Maurice, it's, it's never enough for this ambitious character, of Maurice. But Eugene does answer Maurice. And he says, you know, like, when, when I was... uh when I was a boy, Maurice's question was, "Was Do you ever, did you ever want anything so bad that it hurt? And Eugene says, you know, well, in high school, I wanted a truck. A candy apple red, El Camino with Pirelli tires, chrome wheels, something like that. And, um, you know, Maurice is like, are you, are you sure? Like, that's all? Like, did you want anything more than that? And Eugene's response is uh, pretty strong. He says, you know, just the regular stuff. I wanted a good job a good wife, good kids, the regular stuff.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful thing to say right there. I think, I don't know, I think that's what actually what tripped me up like because I don't think I was in the right headspace to be watching that. But I think that maybe it just ebbs and flows between people of what your ambition wants to be. Like, Mm -hmm. do you want to be like Maurice where you're reaching for something greater? Like you believe, you're so arrogant to believe that greatness has touched upon you Mm -hmm. that you can achieve such great heights right there. Or do you just want to be a decent individual like Eugene and you just want to have that stability and that nuclear family life? And I felt that I don't know. Like just Mm -hmm. me, like personally speaking, I can see the appeal of the suburban life in which you have that white picket fence and -hmm. you're just driving your kids to like, I don't know, like soccer practice or something (laughs) like that. Just that type of lifestyle right there. I think that like, I I know like there is a subsect of people that will balk at that, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Like I waver between saying like that, not being taken out of your element too hard is actually a pretty good thing, which is, you know, kind of a coincidence that this episode is all about taking people out of their comfort zone.
1: Yeah, I mean, when Eugene answers that question for Maurice, then then we kind of think, oh, so everything that Maurice is saying, that's just incredibly selfish, right? Like he thinks of himself, he has such an ego, thinking of himself being this hero, being this great man. But I mean, I think you're right too, Charles. It's kind of a bit of both because it's, I don't think it's ever bad to have ambitions, and I mean, maybe they can they can become selfish, but you know, I think it's always you know, I think it's a great thing to want to do great things. Um, but if you just want to do it to be famous, you know, Eugene says you got your name in the encyclopedia. I don't know if that's even Maurice is just he just wants to be famous or anything like that. Maybe there's a part of him that is kind of egotistical, but I do believe that Maurice is the kind of person who sees big things happening and wants to make them happen, you know? And there, maybe that's also what this um, difference is, trying to underline this difference between Big Maurice and Little Maurice is that they're different types of people where Maurice is burdened with this uh, desire to make big change and make big things happen, whereas Little Maurice... He's unburdened with any of that. He's not concerned with trying to make big waves. He's content with uh, where he is in his life and what he does. And he thinks that the he sees that the highest treasures maybe are not trying to amass seventeen million dollars worth of net worth or, or more. What he wants is to not have a tummy ache, <laughs> not be stressed. You know, mm-hmm. to live a um, fulfilled life. You know, and yeah, I mean, I I think about that a lot too. Like, what are my ambitions in life? What do I want to accomplish and achieve? And then also, I, I'm i also constantly juggling, like, is it worth the effort to do that? You know, it's like, is it worth the stress? I know, like, what makes me happy and what is very fulfilling in my life. So it is a constant balance. It's like, I don't want to do nothing with, you know... Sorry, to sound like it sounds super egotistical. It's like I don't want to do nothing with my talent. I'm so talented, you know. But you know what I mean. It's like I, I, I also, I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah because sorry. If you
2: because obviously okay. So if we're to assume that his ability to do arithmetic function is something to be lauded over, and that he's letting it toil away and waste, if he don't let that talent nurture into something greater. And his mm, argument, little mm-hmm. little Maurice's argument, saying, like, no, I, I think that, like, I should be able to be content with it. Like, just because I have been endowed with this doesn't mean I have to be sent on a mission by God to go achieve something that's beyond my means. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like I'm lazy or anything. It genuinely gives me stress over this. So I don't want to seek it out. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, like, I, I was just playing it out in my head. I was like, I'm pretty sure... Like, 100% of this person is right. You can't Little Maurice or Big Maurice? Little Maurice. Like, you can't be the person to say, like, I don't, it doesn't matter. Do you know how little, do you realize, like, how many other people aren't touched upon greatness? Like, you have to strive Mm -hmm. and utilize this. You can't just let it waste away because that's an insult to other people who don't have it. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I I don't know.
1: I don't want to say right or wrong, but I will say, I I think Little Maurice knows what makes him happy. Mm -hmm. Big Maurice I don't think he understands that yet. He knows what upsets him. And he has, like, I'm trying to make that point of like this burden of ambition. Like there's something, some, the wiring of his brain is that he's not fulfilled until he achieves something greater. And then it's never like Eugene is pointing out, you got your name in the encyclopedia. Didn't you make it? But it's never, that's just the way Maurice works. And there are people like that. And, I think it can be, uh, uh, very easily can be depicted as uh, a negative characteristic. I mean, Maurice is perhaps one of the worst characters in Northern Exposure, but he may be one of my favorites as well, just because the way he struggles with uh, his his problems. And ultimately, the, the town of Sicily is so understanding that, you know, we can see Maurice like come to the light every once in a while, but mm-hmm. he's still Maurice. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is, uh, is yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's more that Maurice is a very unhappy person and he's trying to, perhaps in the wrong ways, trying to find happiness. And I think what we can take from little Maurice here is that he understands what makes him happy, what makes him stressed, what he wants to mm-hmm. do. He knows what he wants to do. And um, oh, go, go yeah, I was
2: just going to say like, okay, I'm just me playing doubles advocate, but this is how I would probably approach it. If I was big Maurice, just trying to like outright win an argument or something like that and say like, you, you only think that is because you're just choosing like the path of least resistance, mm-hmm. like electricity. Mm-hmm. You're always going to go through what can be the easiest thing to travel through. So you don't have to put in that amount of work. You mm-hmm. just want to turn off your brain, just scrub cars and put the, put a in uh, What's that little thing you fill up your gas into, <laughs> something the nozzle, yeah, yeah, like you just want to put your nozzle into the cars. That's all you want to do right there. You just don't want to yeah. think and apply yourself. That's not happiness, that's just you being surrendering, you, yeah, you're yeah. surrendering right there. And I'm trying to make you into something more. I'm trying to tell you that good things can happen when you work hard and then, but then the other arguments, like. No, like why are you can't tell me what I want to do? Like Yeah, well, the scene with Eugene here, how it actually
1: ends, I think is the perfect refutation to that uh theoretical big Maurice argument because Eugene does have to kick Maurice out of the bar. He's like, mm-hmm. "Okay, I actually have to leave now. My my family's outside <laughs> here to pick me up." And we see Eugene hop in the car, and he hops in the car with wife and kids. It's late at night, but the family's there to pick him up and Yeah, no, Maurice doesn't say anything, but he sees this happening and you have to think, it's like, okay, you know, Maurice is a millionaire. Eugene just wanted a candy apple red truck and a nice family. And we can see that it's like, Maurice doesn't have the legacy. He doesn't have the wife and the kids. And there's something about even that little podunk, little truck that they have that issues happiness and warmth. And that maybe is saying like, If the big Maurice argument is like you need to assert yourself and do the best things that you can do in your life, well, isn't that a good thing to have this nice family? Like there's other, you know, there are other ways and it's not, maybe it's not surrendering. Maybe it is really just trying to be uh, true to your own desires and what you want, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe
2: that's part of it. No, 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 I, I get it. I just think that, like, Big Maurice would probably still say, like, no, yeah. that's, not, that's not part of your true desires. <laughs>
1: well, he, he does, the next time we see him, I think that, that scene with uh, Eugene's family in the truck has some effect on Big Maurice because Big Maurice does go to Little Maurice at the gas station and, you know, they fill up gas and just checking on him. But he invites Little Maurice over for dinner. He's like, you know, my, my. I think it was Big Maurice's mom. Yeah. She passed away around this time. You know, this is the day of her death, you know, or the anniversary of her death. You never really knew her, but, you know, she's family. So Maurice uses family here to try to... Um, to, like,
2: build a legacy. Because what his yeah. whole thing is, uh, like, and sorry for cutting you off. No, I'm right. just saying, like, his whole thing is uh, he wants to build, like, this empire, but another way to do it is just bonding with your mm. younger relatives, and then through this theme of family, you can extend yeah his his legacy.
1: Yeah, because Big Maurice and Little Maurice they're a family, and I think they do get along. And Maurice likes things about Little Maurice. And even if it did work out, and they were working together, and they they um, they use their skills to achieve greatness, they are fundamentally different people. So it's not like Maurice can be like. I need someone to carry on my legacy. I need to take little Maurice and make him exactly like me. It won't ever happen. And whether that's genes or or you know the environment or the teachings, I don't think it matters in this argument. It's just trying to show that they're fundamentally different types of people. Maurice is not going to be able to create a clone of himself for his legacy, but he's going to make that familial connection to continue on his legacy
2: in that way. Yeah, no, I totally get what you mean. I think that's a nice resolution for Maurice's plot line. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because it's not like either character necessarily bends one way or the other. Mm-hmm. They're not like, you know, uh, succumbing to the other. Like one doesn't win the argument over the other, but they're acknowledging their differences and uh, still remaining family and staying together in, uh, in an interesting way. Though at the end of the, <laughs> the end of the scene, Maurice is like, oh, hey, you missed a spot. Keep cleaning. Oh, yeah. Keep cleaning there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship, but I like that it, um, yeah, it's just sort of like a little, it didn't go too deep or too far, just enough to kind of explore the key differences between their characters. Mm-hmm. All right. So, let's bring it back to the beginning. And we're going to, now we're going to follow Joel and Maggie's plot line, which is kind of the primary plot line of this episode. If you're like kind of thinking back on it, this is the episode where, spoiler alert, Joel proposes to Maggie. But first, the very opening gambit of this episode is, I think it's a—it's just like a close-up shot on a map of someplace in Russia and, like, Joel's finger or, like, a pen pointing out these different um, locations on the map saying, you know, S-Somelier, Smolier Academy of Internal Medicine, this and that. And Maggie's there with Joel Looking over this map, we understand that Joel's about to take a trip mm-hmm. to Russia, uh, I think to give a speech or give a
2: talk or something. Yeah, but it doesn't it sound like, I, I don't know, because Joel's just a, in residency, right? Oh, yeah. Like, why are they are looking for Joel? It's not like is, he has like a breakthrough
1: in research or anything like that. I feel like the way he talks about himself, because there's that episode with when he does the placebo thing. Oh, that's true. It seems like he has done some interesting case mm-hmm. studies or something, like some interesting things. Because of the remote environment, I think it is a unique environment for a doctor to be in. Uh, maybe not unique, but it's a it's a rare one, maybe oh. uncommon. So that you know, you got a prestigious doctor or a doctor from a prestigious school who is all the way out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe he has something interesting to say about that that he can teach others. And yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I also don't know why he, he, they they would call upon him at this point.
2: Yeah, but they want him there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's the main thing. That's the driver for them to get on this plane. And that's yep. where we spend most of the plot line
1: with. Well, well, originally it was just gonna be Joel and Maggie's. So excited for him, she's like, "You got to go to the oh, ballet. Right. You got to do this." Yeah. And he's like, "You
2: know what? You should just come with me, come Because they got and he plants the seed right there. He says, "Like, <laughs> you know, it's usually reserved for like spouses or something like that." But I think that like you know we're like, kind of close enough. For that, so yeah. Did you just come along
1: when you said when we watched this, Charles? When he said that, it's like you know the the they allow for like a plus one, like a spouse. You were like, oh, they get married, like as a joke. You said oh, that, and you I caught it, it. <laughs> again. You're like predicting this season six. <laughs> um, yeah, so yes, yeah, just to you know get get through that. Basically, Maggie's excited. She's coming, uh, but we don't leave the scene without Joel correcting her. You know, she says, I can't wait to go to the USSR. And he's like, no, 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 it's Russia. They changed it to Russia now. So, you know, that's just a little button at the end to show that they're happy. They're about to go on an adventure. But, of course, Joel, Joel is Joel. He's going to be a, a stickler, you know. And uh, the next scene we get with them, they're, like, boarding the plane. They're getting to their seats. Uh, it really looks like a piece of junk, this plane. And, and you know, it's funny. You can see the chair backs on the mm-hmm. different seats. They have different, like some are in a state of utter disrepair. Some are maybe more new, but still look, it's like the weird carpeting. I don't know if that's how planes just looked in the nineties, but it looks you know, like if you get on a plane today and you're like, oh my God, this this is like this. They haven't changed these seats since the 90s, you know? Yeah. It's like
2: that's what <laughs> well, like, okay. So I saw something uh, a couple of days ago and I don't know if it's like actually verifiable true, Okay, but I saw that back in like the 1950s or 1960s, you would like wear a suit to go on your plane and okay. they would have these like huge meals. Yeah. Like a... Uh, like, I don't know, like fancy food. Right. And they'd be like cutting it in front of you and then like it'd be like a turkey or something like that. And you would just have fine dining on the airplane probably for the first, uh, what is that called? First class? First class. Yeah, mm-hmm. first class passengers. And they would advertise that. They'd be like, fly like a king, get onto these things. And the reason they were able to do that was because uh plane travel back then was much longer. Okay. Like the technology yeah. wasn't as good. So or like- And it, uh, it might've
1: also been that- uh. Well, actually, I'm kind of just speaking out of my I guess, right now. But uh, like it might have just been that, you know, it wasn't as common for people to fly domestically or like, you know, if you wanted to fly on a plane, it would be a long distance somewhere you couldn't drive or couldn't, you know, otherwise get to. Maybe it's a long, long trips.
2: Yeah. I think that's a reasonable point. I think that, yeah. I also heard it was like much more expensive as well. Okay.
1: Yeah. If you're going to get on a plane, it it needs to be a long enough distance.
2: Yeah. So I think that, uh, now that it's like degraded into this, (laughs) whereas like the seats are like from the 1990s and everything though, I think that like the last time I was on a plane, I want to say it was like 2017 or Mm -hmm. something like that. 2017, 2018, they had outlets in the, in the plane seats. Yeah. Like you can charge or put in. Yeah. I was so impressed by that. I was like, "Whoa, they actually
1: like put this into a plane." (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. Not everything's still from the '90s. And then in this case here in Northern Exposure, is like that's what I'm trying to say. Is like, are the chairs? These just what it looked like in the '90s, or are these chairs supposed to be? Obviously, some are really cruddy and threadbare and worn. But you know, I think the idea is that they're riding on some sort of like Russian airliner. Uh, Joel says, "Like I love to fly the." what does he say? He's like, I love to fly the country's airline when I go to that country. It's sort of like a perfect um, entrance into the country. Like we get to feel like we're uh, being led in uh, by the Russian airline. But in this case, um, yeah, it's, it's in total disrepair. And they're like getting to their seats. They sit next to this man with the it almost, like, I really don't know. I think later Joel calls him, like, asks him if he's from the military, like mm-hmm. in that opening soundbite. But he's got that hat on, and he's referred to as captain. It's like a captain's hat. I thought, if I see that, I think it's like a pilot or something. But what is, is that?
2: What is I that it was like an air marshal. Air to marshal? Honest, I saw that. I was that like, could be, uh, yeah. uh, Is he like an air marshal or something?
1: Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, still waiting on the translation, but, you know, knock on wood, we may have an answer if... Uh, we do get a proper translation, and if the scene says anything, but we don't know from from just their conversation that we played at the beginning.
2: But yeah, yeah. Oh, I was gonna say like, um, most of the scenes kind of like follow a streamline in that like it gets worse and worse on the plane. Like we mm-hmm. talked about, like Joel's seat is particularly bad. I think there's like a bolt that's missing, right? And then it turns out that the plane is not departing.
1: Plane is no good That like, because, you know, everyone basically like an, uh, an announcement comes on the intercom and it's in Russian, of course, and everyone in the um, cabin is like, oh, no, like they're guffaw. They're like not excited. And Joel is like, wait, wait, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? And the captain man next to him, the water engineer perhaps, uh, says, no good. And he's like, no good. What's no good? And he points to like the ground, you know, like mm-hmm. the plane, like the ship that they're in is like the vessel. No good, he says. So... Yeah, they're they're just kind of like you don't call it taxiing Taxing is when you like move around on the tarmac. They're just like stuck. They're yeah, sitting they're on the tarmac. Stuck.
2: And I apologize because it's all starting to stream together. Like right. all those because it all goes continuous exactly. in I one sure motion is. right there. So I want to say that the next thing that happens between them is that the man offers Joel some. Uh, he's like eating lard, lard on, a, on
1: rye bread. Yeah, this yeah. is this is one and a half hours later still stuck on the plane. Uh, this man is smearing lard on bread and Joel's like, can you believe this guy? Oh, he's, he's whispering. He does a lot of whispering in this mm-hmm. episode, I noticed. Um, he says, can you believe this guy's eating fat on bread? Uh, he also has like vodka in front of him, it looks oh, like. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. like shooting
2: vodka. And everything. He's, he's
1: ready to go and uh, Joel gets up the nerve to ask the stewardess. He like stands up and asks her, you know, what's going on? Like how, how soon can we go or what's happening? And she says, soon to him. He remarks also in this scene, he's like, oh, I can't believe this. Like everyone's so stolid. Everyone's so patient. Like it, these people, these Russian people, they're so amazing in that way. And he's also talking about like my grandmother, you know, what it would have been like for her to know that we were traveling to the motherland. like uh, She got out of there like as quick as she could. Like I don't know. Like, he kind of goes on a tangent and Maggie's like, uh, is this the scene where... Yeah, Maggie is like I can't take this from you. Just yeah, right? Because she does
2: uh, get well, up. Oh, it's because I think it's um, like <laughs> oh, Joe right. gets up and like he he uh, flags down the airline attendant and mm-hmm. tries to get her to explain more of the information of what's happening. What's mm-hmm. the you know what's the uh what was it called like five one zero uh
1: 411? Yeah, okay. like four one <laughs> one
2: yeah it's like four yeah like what what is happening on this plane? Why aren't we taking off yet? And I think that's the thing that makes yeah. Maggie also. Uh, obs-
1: What's up? Sorry, I was just didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Also, what upsets her is he's like he gets back onto the subject of the bolt missing in the chair. Mm -hmm. He's like, can't believe it. Hundred chairs around here, and I get the broken one. Oh, yeah. And that also pisses her off.
2: You're right, and it's because he genuinely thinks that he is more special than everyone else. Yeah. So like this airline attendant isn't telling anyone else what's happening with it, but Joel's saying like, well, I demand to know. So you should tell me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets into. Uh, an argument between Maggie and Joel in which they're revealing everything in a in a polite way. Maggie is telling Joel that like he is just a person that believes that everything revolves around him, <laughs> and that that upsets her right there.
1: Oh wait, is this when they start yelling at each other? Or? No, no, no. I think okay. it's a little bit later. Wait,
2: wait, wait, wait. I might be skipping a scene. I apologize. That's uh, no, okay. Does we Maggie can... get up to she
1: smoke, and yeah. then she comes back and she tells her problem with Joel? I think that. I think that is what's happening, but. Uh, we can just quickly go on to the part where she's they're talking it out because all that happens is she gets up, she smokes some cigarettes. There's actually one funny bit when uh, Joel is you know Joel's still in the seat and he's reading. Maggie has gotten up because she's kind of fed up with them. She goes to the back smoking room with all the people smoking in the back, which is funny because actually the captain just smokes in his seat, so it doesn't really matter. But they're like across the plane from each other and Joel will like look back over his seat and kind of see Maggie. And there's one where he like mouths to her he's like do you want me to come back there you know and she's like oh no you're good you're good you know they do it non-verbally <laughs> but it's I thought that was pretty funny but she does come back right and so what you were saying Charles is um, so this is when she starts to kind of they kind of talk about it right
2: yeah because Joel asks her to he's like you know we're like we're close now we can reveal these things you can't just yeah. get up well, look, he did not say it in that manner he says it in a more polite way he says like you don't have to get up and just yeah. like you know, try to chill out and just try to separate some space between us. Just talk to me about our problems. let's communicate this openly, yeah so that we can handle this. and that's I, when Maggie tells him,
1: yeah, I do think Joel is being trying to be uh polite and he's trying to be nice, but there you know, it obviously is I don't I wouldn't say Joel's doing the right thing or Maggie's doing the right thing. They're both kind of like passive aggressively, you know, talking things out. But it is, I think it is kind of healthy what Joel is doing to be like, you know, let's, let's talk, let's make sure we're okay. Like we're this will be fine. Um, I'm happy that we're talking about this, but it's also kind of like pushing her into a corner too, where he's like, uh, what did he say? He's like, uh, he's like, look, we're about to go on this big trip. Like, if we're going to have, like, I'm not going to let you screw this up for me. Or He doesn't say that. But he's like, you know, if we're going to get anywhere over this trip, we need to, like, start right now and talk this through, you know? So what does Maggie say to him after that? Because they kind of go back and forth with just airing of grievances, right? Yeah,
2: they just kind of air the grievances right there. And then I think that it just keeps escalating. And what happens is that, like, they spend a night sleeping and everything.
1: Well, the button of that scene is like, uh, you hear a bunch of like power drills and are like, wait, what's
2: going on? Are they taking the wing off? And oh, then it cuts yeah. to commercial. <laughs> they take the wing <laughs> off. And then I think we return back to them. It's nighttime. Right. I feel yeah. like you would have just got off the plane. Like they surely, talked about this. Surely yeah. they would have been like, all right, you're just going to go back to the lobby. We'll call you back in. Yeah. Because I was, we were talking
1: about this, Charles. I was like, how's, what's the longest amount of time? And I think we said like maybe 30 minutes that we've sat mm-hmm. on a plane. Like when they need to, I don't know what it is. They, like they can't take off just yet. But yeah, it's been hours and at this point, nighttime, like the sun has set outside. People are trying to sleep. Surely we would de-plane at this time. But uh, yeah, everyone is just chill about it and is like going to sleep. This is when Joel is not chill about it and gets out of his seat and rushes the cockpit. <laughs> like no one stops him either. He rushes to the cockpit and he's like banging on the door and he yells at the... Uh, the pilots. And he's like, you gotta, you have to explain this to me. Like I, you know, you can't just like expect me to sit there and not know what's going on. And they're like, go to your seat, go to your seat. They say some things in Russian, but that's all you can really say in English. And, uh, I was joking with you, Charles, like this is reminding me of that scene in uh, the newsroom where they're like, <laughs> the the flight attendants like, you know, turn off your phone or what? what's the deal with that scene? It's like,
2: oh, like a really quick summary of that one is like, <laughs> I, I think they like the news producer and his anchor are sitting on an airplane, but it's being constantly delayed and it's on the same day that they killed Osama bin Laden. It, it's based on like, fi- like real events, but it's a fictional television right. show and um, but yeah, it's the day that Osama bin Laden got shot, so they gotta return back to their newsroom, but everyone's like, No, you gotta stay in your seat and everything. And then like <laughs> in your seat, sir, he's like, No, no, no. And then like the pilot comes out, like the captain, and he's like, What's going on? And he's like, I got news for you. And he tells him that like Osama it's died. Like, Ladies and gentlemen, we got, we got him. him. <laughs> <laughs> and like the captain like salutes him, like, Wait, like, does the captain salute yeah, him? Yeah, he's forgot. like, salutes. Him. <laughs> I was like, What is going on here? I
1: forgot about that. Yeah, it's quite ridiculous. Uh but I mean, yeah, I'm not. I like. I to, like, uh, I kind of want to rewatch the newsroom. Sorry. I actually.
2: I rewatch it like yeah. every like every once year in and a, half. a while. Yeah, yeah. like there's I some great watch stuff in there. Yeah, but yeah. that is such a cringe moment. That is like, what is going on right here? <laughs> redeemable um, yeah. yeah, back to Northern Exposure. Uh, <laughs> what's happening here is that I uh, everything just gets more set off, and mm-hmm. it's just a ticking time bomb. Whenever you're set in close proximity, the air conditioner is not working, and They don't have any more food.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. So it's the next morning too. Like people are actually waking up and what you're mentioning is someone is, another passenger is yelling with a flight attendant and Joel doesn't understand what's going on, but the um, captain man next to him. Oh, we totally skipped over. I mean, it's in, we will, and hopefully we will get back to this, but it's in the opening soundbite when Joel is actually having a talk. It's when Maggie goes to smoke cigarettes in the back of the plane Joel has a talk with the um, captain man, the uh, water engineer man. But, you know, there's not much we can say that hasn't already been said by that soundbite. But I just wanted to add that it was like, um, it's a pretty great example of, I mean, we talked about this already, sort of the communication breakdown. We already talked about this at the beginning, but um, Joel is like actively wanting to, Maybe have a closer connection, but it's impossible to do verbally. And maybe that's maybe that is a lesson too. It's something that. Um, sorry, I'm kind of t- thinking about this in a way too with uh, Chris's plotline. Mm-hmm. But we've talked about this a lot already, so maybe we can tie this in a little later. I'll I'll try to remember this thought I had when we get to Chris's plotline, okay. So I think there might be another connection we could draw. But I just wanted to say that had happened before and now. Joel leans over to his new best friend, the water engineer man. He says, what's going on? Why is this person uh, arguing with the flight attendant? And there's no food left on the plane, as you're saying. So they're like, they're stuck. Not only have they not deplaned, they have to sleep on this plane. And pretty soon they're going to be like... Hungry for lunch or for breakfast, and there's not going to be any food for them. <laughs> yeah.
2: You have to, like,
1: this is legal. Like, you can't
2: be detaining them.
1: Like, they're also changing the crew. Like, the pilots get out of the yeah. cockpit, and they've been drinking too. Joel's like, I guess that's uh, you know probably not legal, but like, what's going on? There's a new shift coming in, so the crew gets to deplane, but the passengers are all trapped here.
2: Yeah, uh that obviously sets them off. One more straw is going to break it, and that straw is a cigarette that a man lights. Yeah, the um, water
1: engineer, he's like, Man, I cannot take any more of your passive smoke. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it it sets him off. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No,
2: no, no, it's okay. And he's been smoking the entire episode. Like, that's been <laughs> a whole ordeal with him just lighting up cigarette. And I think like the ashes fall into Joel's shoulder. He constantly wipes it away. They do, yeah. Yeah. And Joel tries to forcibly take <laughs> the cigarette from his mouth. <laughs> Maggie's gotta you know stop him from doing that. And again, it's another thing of like, well, like, I don't know. I was just about to say, like, it's another okay. way of Joel thinking that the world revolves around it. But then, like, in another way, like, actually, no. Because if you're just, like, y- you should just be considerate of your other people. Like, yeah. Even, this could be happening to, like, the nicest person ever. And the nicest person ever should still be able to say, like, hey, please don't put your, like, ashes yeah. next to me. Please stop well, smoking as much.
1: Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. I don't think Joel's wrong for being upset and he wants to explain, like, hey, like – please obviously, but there is a communication breakdown where they can't understand each other. But Joel now moving to physical force, a uh, big problem there. like that's not that's yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. not legal. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, aggravated assault or assault or whatever that's called. Um, it's it's uh, it's a pretty uh, insane blow up, you know for for Joel Fleischman, but I guess we can understand what he's going through being trapped on this plane overnight. And uh, just straight up not having a good time like Maggie <laughs> <laughs> and Maggie are arguing. He's about to have to go be trapped in, you know, no longer trapped on the plane once it lifts off. He's going you know, about to be trapped in Russia with someone who hates his guts. Um, well, I mean, it's about to happen because, as we said, Joel is trying to wrestle the cigarette out of this man's hand. I'm surprised that the water engineer man didn't just, like, punch him back. You know, Right. <laughs> like, he's much bigger. But... Um, this is what really sets off Maggie. Obviously, she's got to try to stop Joel. And um, they they kind of blow up on each other. And in so many words, they say, I hate you. Like, they hate each other.
2: Yeah, it's a really well-rehearsed scene, I feel like. Or maybe they just like, or, you know, they're both naturally good actors. So mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they, just- they really hate each other in real life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. I think they, uh, I was really impressed. There were some moments, I think the first scene of this episode felt a little canned from Maggie's performance because she's supposed to be excited. and uh, You know, that's what I guess we're supposed to feel, but it doesn't come across as too genuine. But this stuff, not just saying that when she gets angry at Joel, that's genuine, but the stuff on the plane all felt really great. Maybe they were rehearsing that and they, you know, they don't have to get up and move around. They like can focus on their lines and they're tra- literally trapped here. So they don't have to move the camera a whole lot. I would hope, I mean, maybe that is tricky trying to shoot on that plane to position the camera. I'm just imagining that they have a lot of uh, room to work here, uh, which could be completely <laughs> the opposite case. It might be very claustrophobic in that plane set. But I just wanted to say I really liked their performance, as you're saying, in this scene, but throughout this whole airplane uh, sequence throughout this episode. But sorry, I didn't I didn't want to cut you off there. But
2: no, 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 it's all right. Um, I mean, it comes back at the next scene where they calm down. When they say, like I, like, I hate you. Okay. I, I hate yeah. you back. And then, obviously, on the next scene, they calm down a little bit more. But Maggie is still telling Joel. I was like, you know, when you when you get there, you can just go by yourself. Like, I right. don't want to be involved with you you know whenever we get off the plane. And then Joel has a heart-to-heart conversation with her, saying, like, what are we doing here? Because, mm-hmm. like, it feels like this is a struggle to the death. Like, I don't know how this is going to end up because we've been doing this for years and years mm-hmm. right here and I it's see. season
1: six you know, so, yeah you know we're season talking about six the show right two, here yeah
2: they're exhausted and in joel's mind the way to break this cycle in order to go on like two steps what is it like three steps forward two steps yeah back. i don't know it's why what they Maggie do one and two they go two and three <laughs> yeah. he's that interval but like <laughs> yeah joel pulls up like that trump card so he's like why don't why don't we just marry each other why not we just... Uh... <laughs> jump card, yeah.
1: It's like, marry me. And yeah, I do. I remember this episode. I remember it being... I think I was also pretty surprised too because I didn't know this was going to happen the first time I watched this back in high school or something. But watching it again, this feels strange. It feels like an odd solution, but maybe that's what the writers are like. They're really trying to... I'm not really totally sure what's going on here, but I did think about this... The first time I watched it, too, when I was in high school, it reminded me of the scene in Annie Hall. There is the scene in Annie Hall where Woody Allen's character and Diane Keaton's character decide to finally split up. And that takes place on a plane. And I don't know how long the scene is. I don't think it's very long. But there is a line that Woody Allen says, something like, a relationship is like a shark. It's got to keep moving forward. If, if it stops, it can't stand still. If it does, it's dead. Is that a true fact? I don't know that that's a true fact. It's probably not true about sharks, but it is like a, th- there is something about can sharks. I,
2: can th- they not just make like a square? You know, <laughs> in driving, you can make like four right yeah. turns to get back to your original location. Can they not just do that? Yeah, I'm sure a, I'm sure
1: a shark can like wade. You know, and sharks got to sleep at some mm-hmm. point. You can't be like sleep and move, but whatever. I mean, th- he's making some metaphor here. Uh, I don't know if it's particularly scientifically accurate or anything like that, but the metaphor is, I guess it works with relationships. You got to constantly be bringing each other up, you know, supporting each other and evolving, uh, into new phases of the relationship. You know, you get married, you have children, you grow, you know, all these different, um, life phases, I guess. So this scene taking place on a plane and knowing the writers and the shows, um, that they always reference Woody Allen. And I guess they have sort of this, uh, connection to that sort of, like, quirky New York romantic comedy. I think that some of that is in the DNA of some of this show. It definitely felt that there's some sort of connection there the first time I saw this in high school. And it's interesting, though, in this series, they do not split up. It seems like it's leading to that. You know, if you're thinking about the Annie Hall scene where they break up. Yeah. This is the complete
2: opposite flip here. I thought that was going to happen. I thought they were going to break up mm. uh, right then, and I would have been, like— it would have been a metaphor with the plane leaving just like their relationship is leaving. But mm-hmm. they kind of turned it on its head a little bit because the plane comes back to life once they mm-hmm. decide to get married. And instead of going to Russia, which I think they made the right call because at that point, like the, the thing he was done. Missed
1: the, he missed the conference. Yeah, right?
2: it was already missed. So I was <laughs> like, yeah, no, I wouldn't do that either, man. You got to fly like I don't know how far is it from Alaska God, to yeah, Russia?
1: Like maybe a day or something. Oh, yeah. Alaska to Russia—that's actually still pretty, pretty close, long. But, but probably yeah, still probably pretty long.
2: And you got to fly back because you already lost a day because your return ticket is probably like—it's kind of close. So it was like a weekend trip or something, right? So yeah, when the plane is about to take off, they get off. They don't want to be with the plane to leave. They decide yeah. to go this course, and they return back to Sicily. Get back mm-hmm. to, um, is it Maggie's place? It's Maggie's It's place. Maggie's house, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to also point out, um, I like obviously the obvious metaphor of the plane being stalled, the relationship being stalled, and it's like coming back to life at the end. But I liked, I didn't think about what you're saying. The end of that is like the plane leaving the destination could be a metaphor for splitting up and departing uh, Um, uh, the the relationship, a breakup, you know? But instead, they just like, Get off that plane and uh, you know, decide to come closer together by living together. So they're walking up Maggie's steps, and um, she's like, Oh, I never have been so happy to see my front steps and this broken step here on the third rung or whatever. And they are talking about the next step in their life, you know, one step at a time, I think is mentioned in this scene. Joel says, you know, I came on like I I uh, I don't know. This was kind of clever here, I thought, because to me retrospectively thinking about this episode, it's like, okay, yeah, he just proposed to her, but they're not going to get married. Like the show has to like pump the brakes somehow. And the writers uh, here, it's presented as Joel saying, you know, like, I don't want to feel like I trapped you with that. Like I felt like maybe I was coming on too strong. And Maggie's like, no, 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 no. I think like we're doing the right thing. But they both um, mutually Um, Decide together that it's like, you know, we don't want to pressure ourselves too far. Let's take it one step at a time. And maybe we should live together first. He says it can't hurt, right? It won't hurt.
2: So are they like, is it an actual proposal or is this like a fake out?
1: I don't know, right? I mean, I guess we have to watch the next episode, but I feel like it's an actual proposal. Like, wouldn't that be wrong if the next episode they were like, they, they backpedaled would, everything. They would
2: they, do this dirty if they did that, right? man. Right? Because the
1: whole this, I don't think this is. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Because the whole idea of their conversations is like three steps forward, two steps back. It's like no, we have to change it. Right, now. and that's
2: why I think it's like you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. You can't do that. You, can't do that. you can't do that to your audience.
1: They may already again. They may know this is the last season too. So like they, I don't know. They, I don't know what information's around, but I think even if they don't know that this is the last season, this is the sixth season, and it's like we've been doing this. Uh, maybe the three and the two is referencing the five s- seasons before. The one, two, three is are, are three steps forward in the relationship. The fourth season, Mike Monroe is a step back. And why, how about the fifth season? The fifth also season be started th- dating. Though. Yeah, Let's try to <laughs> add the numbers. Um, no, I don't think this is going to be a fake out. I think this is an honest proposal, but it's they're moving it. Um, they're moving it forward slowly. Charles, I didn't get your opinion. What is your opinion of this? Proposal like Joel proposing to Maggie.
2: Uh, it's soured because I know I mean, I, we, yeah. we know that he leaves. Yeah, so I think that it's like entirely soured.
1: Yeah, I guess that is a bit. I mean, that's one spoiler. I think that you couldn't avoid knowing that Rob Morrow. I mean, you could have somehow. It I could have been tried. Very to even, hard. Like, we've done this podcast for years. Yeah. So knowing that, and I think even before I knew that Joel proposed to Maggie, I probably knew back when I was watching in high school. Like Jay may have told me or his mom Charlotte or we may have figured out that he leaves the show at some point. So, it is bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean like um do you think this is uh do you think this makes sense for the relationship uh, the way that Joel and Maggie go from arguing to immediately flipping it on its heads, like marry me, this is our only option? Because I feel like they I don't know. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to go. Ahead. I, don't know. go ahead. I think
2: I don't know. I think they like so like in television way you know, it works. Yeah. You go from like hot to cold right there. Mm -hmm. You got this idealistic view of how it should go. And you're saying, we just need to move forward. We need to pull the plug and just get married. Uh, But if this was real life, I I don't know. I think that's like a little bit of a red flag. This (laughs) almost sounds sounds like one of those things where it's like, we're having a lot of problems. You know what will fix this? A baby. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's the,
1: what. (laughs) when I watched it this time, that's the uh, instinct that I felt. It was like, oh, I don't think you guys should just get married to solve your problems. But- I can't deny the chemistry in that I was like we're saying, I love that the acting from Joel and Maggie all all throughout this plane, but the chemistry of them yelling at each other and then going from that to will you marry me felt very powerful. I'm sure fans of the show loved it when they were watching it. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it does make sense because I mean, if I watch this episode out of context, the fact that they say they hate each other and then will you marry me seems very juxtaposed and just like, it doesn't make any sense together. But knowing the characters, when they say, I hate you, you hate, like, I hate you, you hate me. They've said that many times and we know that there is that chemistry and that love underneath it. So it's not so strange if you have watched the five seasons before this to see like, despite Maggie saying, I hate you. And despite Joel saying, I know you hate me and things like that. We know as the fans of the show and the audience that they are meant for each other. You know, that's what the show tells us every season after, you know, after the next. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, my initial reaction watching this time was like you're saying, like, uh, we should have a baby or something, you know, but (laughs) what I know of the show, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it sells. It works for me. So that's the end of the Maggie Joel plotline, the end of the episode here. Uh, well, actually, I guess we see them one more time at the very end with Chris, which we'll get to. But I did want to say it's funny. You know, they're, they're, they're going to get married to each other. But Maggie is still um, still going to call him Fleischman, even though she will eventually share the lesson. Because <laughs> she says, uh, well, Joel says to Maggie, whatever you say, Mrs. Future Joel Fleischman. And she says, "That's Mary Margaret O'Connell Fleischman to you, Fleischman." So she's still calling him Fleischman, even though that's also going to be part of her name. Uh, I just love that moment. But
2: yeah, <laughs> and that brings us to the last plot line with Chris Stevens and k Bear. It's really not some billboard notes par for the course. But then when he touches his microphone, it has a little static shock on him. Yeah, here's uh, like that zap. Up. At the end of the broadcast, he's starts shuffling his legs. He's trying to generate the uh, the current, I think, and then uh, touches the mic again, and it's a bigger shock. And at the time, I didn't, <laughs> I just didn't think it was like that obvious. I was like, surely he's not going to grow like an addiction to electricity, right? <laughs> like maybe it's like some sort of like wake up call for him or something. I thought it was like a smaller part yeah. to a larger thing. But no. He's addicted. Yeah, he's addicted
1: to the electricity. I thought that was pretty cool. Just his reaction and his glee and delight that he takes in getting shocked by this uh, static charge. And uh, I do think, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. I don't really know how that works. But I think uh, he's got those rubber-soled boots. So I think you probably need to take the boots off first and just do like, from what I understand, isn't it like you got socks against the rug? Then you touch and you get a zap.
2: Yeah, that's how you do it. I hate having static shock. What about you?
1: Not a fan. Can't say I like the static shock. I was, uh, recently, this was happening to me a lot. And I realized it was because of a particular like hoodie I was wearing. I don't know if it was like fleece or something very soft. And the seat that I was in. Do you remember like at elementary school, you'd have like those plastic
2: yeah yeah, chairs. yeah
1: those would always shock yes. you because they have little brads of yeah. metal they got like so. four of them
2: right there to like connect the pieces or something with the metal on the back yeah yeah
1: but the material of the chair is rife for generating static electricity and then it also has those little nubs that you can that <laughs> part of it that will shock man. you
2: that always got me i was i hated that um i don't even like my trick sometimes um Uh, there's a treadmill at my place Mm -hmm. and sometimes it has like metal bars like handles that you can hold on to Mm -hmm. to like i guess it's like maybe to detect your um your heart rate or something like that okay it does something like that but it's it's metal and (laughs) when you're running you sometimes just hit it and it just shocks like static shocks you so hard i've taken to like i don't know if this actually works because i'm just too much of a coward to actually like go through and experiment with this but i'll slap it really hard Like, to, to like discharge. To discharge. So, like, I'll just slap it. Yeah. And then, like, hope that that will dissipate the electricity.
1: You should try to, like, wrap it with something. I've or, tried that. It goes through yeah. it.
2: Because <laughs> it I, I, I put, like, socks on it. And then, like, <laughs> you put loot a sock. And I was like, oh, this is, like, this situation is, like, beyond my means. <laughs> yeah,
1: I cannot control this. It's the power of electricity that thrills Chris so much. Yeah, definitely
2: uh, <laughs> enraptures him. Because in the next scene, we see him. He's got, like, a little doodad. Uh, one of those little toys that you can touch, and like uh, it's like an orb. Oh yeah, like it's like a Tesla coil thing, or like a baby one. Yeah, like yeah. And uh, I thought this was insane because he was he was narrating this on air. Yeah. Like, can you imagine you're at Sicily, <laughs> and then you you hear the progression of the <laughs> going the radio saying, DJ like, just like talking about Jones this.
1: in for a shock. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and he's like talking about. <laughs> just like trying yeah. to manifest electricity, he's really getting he's really getting into it right there. And
1: um, yeah, he's he's um, he's talking about like wanting to be. I don't know if it's necessarily in this scene, but he's just fascinated by. Oh, the, he's talking about positive and negative, and things coming together. And that's you know kind obviously uh, kind of related to Joel and Maggie being these um, opposing forces that can't help but pull themselves together in the end. And uh, I also just wanted to point out the the way this scene is shot, I believe it's one long continuous take, but I did note down that it is very shallow focus and there's lots of elements in the foreground. It's a very close lens on Chris and the camera sort of moves around the surrounding area and the focus shifts between these different like batteries, circuit boards, cables, wires. And ultimately, as he's talking, he'll uh, take a pickle and put it between two, like, electrodes, I guess. Scene. Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, he wasn't afraid that, like, it would catch on fire.
1: Or explode or pop. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that guy on YouTube? Uh, I Gosh, I wish I knew his channel's name, but that YouTube channel name is Electro Boom. It's hilarious because he's always, like, using electricity in the most degenerate ways. Like he's like, I found a new way to um pluck my eyebrows because like I hate plucking my eyebrows. It's so painful. And he's like zaps his face and he's like, oh, oh <laughs> and <they're> like <laughs> anything, part of it catches on fire. He's like, yeah. he's like, he's so funny, but I do enjoy I have watched some of his other videos, like uh longer form ones, where I mean, he speaks really quickly and kind of manically in a in a funny way. It might be part of a character, but it does seem to he has obviously has knowledge of electricity, and I, I have very little knowledge of electricity. So it's fascinating that he can kind of talk about it so much and so quickly. But sorry, I just when I saw those electrodes, I thought about the look, the guy zapping his mustache off and stuff. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> um,
2: um, yeah, yeah, uh, this. It goes like it goes hard real fast because the next <laughs> time we see Chris, is that he's in his own little shed. I, he
1: might even—is it his home? It's a shed like in the middle of the woods or something. Because Eugene and Walt stumble are uh, upon rabbit
2: it. hunting, right? And uh, they stumble upon it. They see like Frankenstein's lab, and they're like, "What's going on there?" And Walt says, "I think it's for some." Art experiment, and at this point in the show, I thought I was like it's something more nefarious. <laughs> What'd you think? Like, I don't know because I thought Walt was about to be disproven because oh, Walt said it was You be, thought so, there
1: was going to be a flip, or yeah, something like a flip, it. just some made, some it's like he's setting it up for a
2: flip. Yeah, I was like, what is happening here? Is like Christian like they commit suicide? Like, what is I thought <laughs> it was going to take a dark turn and. Uh, it, it explodes. Chris run, comes running out. Um, it's like
1: smoke billowing out, and mm-hmm. um, that's like kind of the end of the scene, right? Actually, I was yeah, pretty curious, much. like what would happen next, but they just cut. So, but we we just get that information that Chris has been tampering, experimenting uh, in the last scene with electricity, and it's going bigger, and it's falling. It's all falling apart in a way. Um, I like that. I like that scene the way they have kind of framed the perspective there. The next time is with Ed,
2: right? Yeah, it's that conversation with Ed in Field of Dreams. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh so Ed's in the shack and Chris is like, I mean, uh you know, Ed's like, what am I looking at here? And Chris says it's the world's biggest 12th grade science project. It's like nothing, you know. It's no it's uh I tried to get close. So I wanted to be in it. Like he wanted to be in electricity and um Ed mentions Field of Dreams, you know, if you build it, they will come. So that's suggesting that Chris needs to build something grand, perhaps. And also, I was kind of talking with you, uh, Charles, about this at the end of the episode after we had watched it. I was like, the, the part of that that I also think is important is it has something to do with an audience as well. If you build it, they will come. The audience is needed for whatever metaphor this is trying to explain, like we already said that this could be a metaphor for opposites attracting in romance. And I think Chris even draws that comparison at the very end when he has his monologue talking about like not just electricity, but people and love and things like that. And our connectedness is opposites attract often as they do in uh, physics, you know? So we, we have the idea of like, we might the audience might need to be an important part of this metaphor as well. And Chris finally, I think, ends the scene where he's he's hearing what Ed's saying and it's jogging some thoughts in his head. He says, what did Einstein say? There's no room both for field and matter because field is the only reality. That's how I get inside, Ed, the field. And this kind of ties in with the, I mean, the very next scene is the last scene of the episode and the last last, uh, Chris plotline scene. But um, it kind of ties in with the idea where previously he says to Ed, he wanted to be in it. He wanted to be part of electricity. And he realizes that it's not about entering into this physical thing. It's a field. It's some sort of connectivity that we can't see, that we can't be a part of, but that emanates from us. And so I think I was talking to you about this, Charles, right after we finished. It's kind of like he was asking the wrong question, trying to get into this beam of electricity and more the answer, the reality, is the field, as Einstein says. It's the idea that electricity maybe is some sort of product of this field that we all share. Like, I think he'll, well, let's get to the next scene, because he kind of has a monologue talking about how we're all electricity. But what happens in this this uh, next and, and final scene?
2: Yeah, it brings us to the last scene of the episode, where got the townsfolk all gathered up. They want to see Chris's new art piece. And Chris and Ed come into town in this... This uh like a, it's almost like a military
1: vehicle or yeah. something. It's it like, almost looks old like Jeep exactly. Or <laughs> I was just
2: thinking that I was like It's like a tank or something. They bring this in and they haul it out, and Chris isn't like
1: I'm assuming it's some sort of insulation material. It's like some sort of foil suit. It reminds me of like astronaut blankets or something, yeah. but it also has like a flare on the um it's for stock. Like yeah, David it's bowie. very style. <laughs> yeah, it's very bowie. He's wearing like this long scarf like tie thing around his neck and he's I wouldn't necessarily say his hair is styled but it is like it almost feels like it's kind of gelled upwards or something
2: yeah it's like, yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's slick back right there and he is here to present his newest feat of magnetism Mm -hmm. and I, I think what he's trying to say is that these two things are related I think we got a sound bite right here yeah
0: All right, don't be shy come on in close everybody she ain't gonna bite Sisley, good turnout for art. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're here to honor electricity. The charge that charges what? Everything, right? From those electrons that's snapping in our brains to our father, the sun. I mean, what's the sun? Hmm? It's kind of like a brain. Electromagnetic fields, solar flares, like sparking back and forth from those nerve cells. We're all one. Folks, Giant blobs of electricity, all of us. Positive and negative electromagnetic fields just circling each other. Positive, negative, north, south. Male and female looking for that electric moment. And then wham! Magnet to magnet, opposites attract. Poles hold, poles meet. Equipoise in the universe. Isn't that what art's all about? Ed, you ready? This first ride's mine. Then it's anybody's turn. Fire it up, Ed! All right!
2: Uh, yeah, so what Chris is essentially saying is that, like, the electrons that's firing in our synapses, in our brain, that's the thing that fuels everything. Without that, there'd be no current going through us. We'd just mm-hmm. be a body, essentially. But we need, like, the gasoline to keeps us mm-hmm. running right there. <laughs> and he compares that to, like, the sun... He says, like, you know, that's also the same thing. It's just like a giant brain. The mm. electrons, like, sort of built up. I think about like, Chris's whole thing was that he wanted to be in the state of electricity. Mm. And that, like, I I, I'm, I, don't know if I'm, like, interpreting it correctly. But, like, I, I think it's, like, a state of freedom, maybe. I yeah. remember you had, like, thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, he, I also liked, maybe this is kind of. Ties in, but Chris is saying uh, one of the things he says is equipoise in the universe. Is't that all what what art is all about? and equipoise meaning like a balance or finding some sort of some sort of maybe the freedom is recognizing, trying to tie it back to what you're saying, recognizing that we're all pushing and pulling off of each other at every moment. But you're saying you're saying, is this like in contrast to him trying to jump into a beam of electricity, maybe? Or is that what you're saying? Or
2: like the literal act is him trying to do that. But like, I think <laughs> like what's troubling him is that like it's not about being a, a like quote unquote electrical, it's about the ability to affect other mm. individuals right here. Yeah. And I think that's maybe, and that's why he like ties it into art at the last. Oh, that's a good uh, point. Speech. It's
1: like art in its own way. You know, we're all made of electricity and art it seems like it's something man-made, but perhaps it, it works similarly to the push and pull of magnetism. Like it can what? draw the audience in.
2: Yeah. What, was this like the a really saying. big concept back in the day? In the 90s? <laughs> Cause isn't this the plot of The Matrix? Uh, what would you explain? So like in the matrix, they like harvest a bunch of humans because we produce a, a, oh, yeah. some form of yeah. electricity. So <laughs> they're like, you know what? Instead of building like a nuclear reactor or whatever, we'll, we'll get humans and we'll use all the we'll, humans and as then its we'll devise powers. like a program. It like was a very complex plot <laughs> to like justify electricity. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, I guess you haven't seen, I'm, I'm thinking of like Avatar now or something, but it's just kind of like this, um, Oh, unobtainium right. or something. It's like this like resource that we don't fully understand scientifically. I'm talking about in the matrix. It's like, for some reason, humans are better than nuclear reactors. I, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, like, I, I it works it's, better. I just
2: realized, I think it's because like some sort of like natural disaster happens to the earth where they can't build it or something like that. I think uh-huh. that was their justification. Okay. I there's no way they, they would have missed out what? on that because that's like a ridiculous about. plot line. If oh, they, they couldn't don't build
1: a a nuclear reactor sounds yeah. like so we have to find some sort of other An alternative source, source of electricity. For electricity
2: which i still think is ridiculous that's nah, the future man they figure out how to
1: harvest the neurons i don't know we have i don't to- think that's like <laughs> enough The i think totally like, si- science fiction
2: even with yeah. the amount of humans they show which is like i don't know like a hundred thousand or something like that you need like in my opinion like to generate that much electricity you need like a quite brilliant like a, a made-up number <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah.
2: But no, this is great. It it does tie back
1: into what Ed said. If you build it, they will come. Like the art is also, art has its own magnetic pull, even if we can't quantify it um, in an electrical way. It's pretty cool. But let's talk about the art show, the actual thing. We got this truck tank, this thing that we described coming in, and it's got some like... Crazy. It almost looks like a power line attached to the back with like the different transformers and things and Ed's here to pull the switches. Whereas Chris is going to sit in a clawfoot tub and the tub has like some sort of handlebars going upward above the tub is this huge metal plate and above the metal plate is a crane holding a high-powered magnet like you could see at a um, like at a junkyard.
2: Yeah, or like an arcade little claw machine thing. Oh, yeah. Comes down. It's
1: like pulling it down, picking it up.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's a crazy experiment. I, I do applaud him for getting into a bathtub because I thought that was crazy at first. I thought it was style, and oh, we just looked it up. <laughs> we're like, oh, porcelain's an insulation material. Mm-hmm,
1: yeah, so in case something went wrong and he got electrocuted, he would be safe maybe. Be yeah, cool. with a suit and everything. It's like a, a test. What's that called? Um Faraday cage or something, maybe his own design of a Faraday cage. Um, but yeah, he's like, all right, flip the switch, Ed. And like he, he does it and it's like, zoom, you hear the electricity, all the crowd is reacting. You see the magnet on top of the crane and you see um, Chris is starting to levitate a little bit but he's just barely six inches off the ground, which is still really cool. That's still I think. like ridiculous. But he's like, no, give it all it's got, Ed, give it all she's got. And like he pulls more switches <laughs> and like the, the transformer explodes. There's sparks and smoke. And like, I was starting to get worried. And then you see shots of the audience who has gathered, they start running. So I'm like, oh crap, this is not going to end well. Music starts to swell. It's, um, Frankenstein by Edgar winter group. So it's like just coming out of the drum solo and like the guitars are like raging. It's like so insane. And it does, obviously Chris is lifted even higher. Like it's no longer six inches off the ground. He's like flying up in the air. And how how does it end, Charles?
2: Yeah, like I, <laughs> I thought it was the most ridiculous ending. He, he, he connects to it, you know. He puts his arms up. Music is loud. It's yeah. pumping, like it's bumping right here. And then freeze frames with his arms pumped up. Yeah, it's like I've freeze done frame. it. I've achieved
1: flight. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, yeah. Freeze frame is such a, a bizarre way to end, such a, a bold way to end this episode. But um, I forgot to mention Maggie and Joel are in the audience. And when Chris says something about like attraction, you know, obviously it cuts to them. Um, yeah, I was worried for Chris that he's going to like explode and die, though we did find out that he has an insulated, uh, perhaps Faraday cage. I was, I, I, we, obviously Charles, when we were watching this together, we couldn't believe our eyes. It's such a crazy way to end an episode, but I had a lot of fun with it. And I just had to think like, um, I'm putting myself in the mind of the editor for this episode because that last, the freeze frame, very bold editing choice, you know, so it's like, what is the editor doing in this scene? And, you know, any scene with special effects like this and we know Northern Exposure, you know, it had a budget, but not, it wasn't like a grand scale budget. They were working with what they could to try to produce a great episode of TV So, you know, when they go to shoot this, they have their plans and it's like, okay, maybe this will work. Let's shoot it like this and the VFX department will get it and they'll have to make the magic happen, you know, make it look like he's actually flying and raising up. And the editor maybe at the time has all this footage and is like, oh man, like, I'm sorry, he or she is like, what am I, what am I going to do with this? Like, how am I going to turn this (laughs) into the powerful ending that this episode needs? And maybe they just found themselves in a corner. It's like, all right, screw it. Crank up the heavy metal music, (laughs) get it blasted and then freeze frame. Like, you know, it is a, if anything, it is a joyously like funny, wacky ending that I kind of really like. It is not... I don't, maybe on paper, it was supposed to be, um, I imagine on paper, it was just like something that the VFX could not do. Maybe they didn't have enough time. They didn't have enough money. It's like, we can't make this as cool as you want it to be, but uh, they'll figure it out in the editing department. And so they crank up that Edgar Winter Group song. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I forgot, I should mention that obviously, if I had to bet this song is not on the DVDs. I'm pretty sure I looked it up. I'm pretty. Um, I'm pretty sure. I yeah, checked that it.
2: wouldn't have been nearly as powerful. I gotta <laughs> but, say that was because w- what makes it such a strong contrast is like it ends with the freeze frame, and I think the music's still going. Yeah, and then it fades to black. Music's it's still, still kind of going, still revving. Yeah, and then it like ends, and then it goes like <laughs> <I'm> Like
1: what? <laughs> David Schwartz, maybe? Yeah, it always has to go back to the um, to the normal credits with uh, the moose standing outside of Rosalind's Cafe. I'm going to quickly watch the ending on DVD. Let me pull that up. All right. It's definitely not Frankenstein. It's a song with some lyrics. Um, I, I'm going to check Moose Chick real fast to see if they give the title of the song. All right. They do not. Okay. One last thing. Sorry to keep you here, listener, but we're, I'm going to Shazam it and see. If I can <laughs> this usually never works because the songs that they replace, the, the replacement songs that are added are just like songs that don't really exist. They're like, you know, they're literally exist on compilations of CDs that are meant to be sold to production companies to be like, this is royalty-free music. Like you buy the CD, you own the rights to this song. So, all right, let's see what Shazam does. All right, we found it. So this is a a real song. It's called Got You Babe by Lincoln Street Exit. That's the name of the band. And uh, this is a song you can find on Spotify, on YouTube. Let me see if I can figure out anything about this band, Lincoln Street Exit. They're from 1970, I think, is this when the song came up? Formed in 1964, I'll tell you, they don't have a Wikipedia page, but they are on Discogs, so they produced a few uh, records. This isn't sometimes what I find is like some of these um, replacement music. It's just like the name of the composer, like one artist. But this was an actual recording band, uh, recording artists in the studio who made this song. Um, yeah, this is pretty tight. I think it it definitely generates. A similar feeling and like I didn't want to say electricity like but pun you know yeah, no, like pun, no pun intended yeah <laughs> <laughs> like vibe it has that vibe of heavy rock but of course you can't deny the Edgar Winter Group Frankenstein is just that is uh just such a classic it really sells that moment and you, you know I just want to believe that the editor is like in the editing bay speakers cranked up and just rocking out at the <laughs> end
2: Free frame baby who's it there. <laughs> yeah, we did it. We did yeah, it. Put yourself on the back. print. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to air broadcast right now.
1: <laughs> okay, Charles, now we're recording a little bit in the future from before. We're about to bring on our guests, but before we do that, I promised that we would try to get a translation for um, the water engineer person, whatever that scene was going on. Um, we did find Uh, some help from Club NX online, the uh, Northern Exposure Club NX on Facebook. And um, a couple different comments seem to suggest that he truly was saying water engineer. So we got from, uh, this is gonna be really hard to pronounce, but I'm gonna say Gregor Bittner wrote that they knew a little bit of Russian and yes, he is a water engineer. I think he's doing water treatment, but it's not exactly specific. Kezia Kaznocha says, he says he's been working for 22 years. He repeats water, water. He's a water engineer. He says he's not military. And then Jelica Gavrilovic says 22 years, engineer boss in water. Not a military person, I think. Voda, Voda, Voda. It gets a bit mumbly. He does sort of mumble at the end. It almost seems like he's saying some sort of like nursery rhyme or some sort of like song that he's singing at the end there. So, I mean, maybe Joel wasn't far off. He actually got the right translation with water engineer, but I guess it still kind of serves the purpose of like, what does that matter? What's the real connection here?
2: I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why I like thinking back on it. Well, like we said at the top of the episode, we were recording that in person right there. Yeah. And I was shooting. I mean, just like full disclosure, I was shooting straight from the hip. I I didn't have notes written down because we went straight from watching the episode to recording it, and it was fresh in my brain. I was like, I don't need notes. But uh, (laughs) if I did, if I came in like a decent human being, I would have uh, googled this. (laughs) Oh yeah, we could. uh, We
1: also never tried Google. We could probably do that now. Yeah, so I I just I just
2: googled it now. (laughs) You know, like very top hit from ZipRecruiter.com was like. A water engineer works on projects to ensure water supplies stay clean, properly dispose of wastewater and sewage, and prevent flood damage. Job duties include designing and building structures for water resource control, overseeing project construction, monitoring technical systems, and analyzing technical data. So it seems like a water engineer is someone that is primarily dealing with like sewage. Just yeah. like making sure like the pipes are running underneath us.
1: Well, I hope we didn't offend any water engineers when we were like, that's that's not a thing, right? Like, no, it's totally just Google it. It's a thing. Um, so thank you so much, you guys on Club NX for helping us translate that. Uh, that was really fast, too. I think I posted it like in the morning and then within an hour or maybe even less than an hour, we got the first hit. And throughout the day, people were commenting. But similarly with a quick turnaround we have this episode's guest Tanali Tanali reached out uh, to be part of the uh, you know a guest in season six and I told them that um, you know we got this block already locked off so let me get back to you in the next block of episodes uh, but someone you know dropped out last minute so we had this slot and I emailed Tanali back and I think it was like, Literally like 24-hour turnaround, maybe less. So Tanali did this so quickly, and I'm really impressed with, uh, with just listening back to their thoughts are presented in such an amazing way. Let's just go ahead and listen to it, and we'll get into it.
3: Hello, Northern Exposed podcast. Tanali here. Thanks for having me on. I'm here to talk about the season six episode, Full Upright Position, and season six in general. Before I dive into that, allow me to summarize how I came into the show. In the early 90s, while in high school, my older brother told me to watch the show. Neither of us liked television at the time, but he thought I'd appreciate the magical realism, philosophy, psychology, literary aspect, and the celebration of community that the show imbues. He was correct. I loved it. The spirit of the show continued to stay with me years afterward, even though I had no way to watch it. About a decade ago, friends and I were discussing the show and curious if it was as good as we had remembered it being. I eventually found the UK Blu-rays with all the original music. I've watched the entire series a few times since. I love the first five seasons. And a lot of season six too, but it was too messy in its vision to rate it as equally as what came before. Oh well. It's hard to maintain brilliance. The show remains relevant and is one of the most beautiful series I've ever seen. There's nothing else that really compares to it. It's pure magic. Incidentally, A group of us have been doing a weekly Northern Exposure watch party these past few months. We're currently in season five. Most of them haven't seen the series, and they also seem to love it as much as I do. A breath of fresh air is how one friend described it. Another said the show makes them think and reflect. Few series do, even today. Anyway, now on to full upright position. This episode highlights for me how what was happening behind the scenes detrimentally impacted season six and why it is often viewed as uneven not to mention the various ideas or storylines that were never executed in ways that the show was so previously masterful at this episode seems like it absorbs the disruption with the production team and network schedule changes joel's upcoming departure david chase seems distracted by wanting to make the sopranos and a general sense that the magic of seasons one through five Isn't going to continue in season 6. Not consistently, anyway. And a lot of the time, the vibe just seems off. That said, there are some truly amazing episodes in this season. A few are among my favorites. Side note, here's my unpopular hot take. Episode 6, Zarya, is as wonderful as the Sicily episode in season 3. Full upright position, however, is kind of patchy. Other than moving the Joel journey forward, This episode is kind of forgettable. I'll start with the Maurice and Chris storylines. Maurice and his cousin, also named Maurice, comes a visit and he is viewed as a possible heir to the Minifield estate. What could have been an interesting story kind of falls flat for me. This happens this season a few times where a potentially interesting idea or storyline doesn't get fleshed out enough. I feel like that happens here. I wanted more between the two Maurice's. Although I did like how little Maurice resembles Big Maurice. I also liked Eugene and Maurice's exchange at the brick towards the end of the episode. That was a touching scene. Fame and fortune can't buy you a family or a community. The Chris storyline, where he summons his inner Nikola Tesla and amuses about the light electric, doesn't quite spark my interest. It all feels rather uninspired and also flat. Oof, probably my least favorite art project by Chris. These two storylines highlight that maybe Northern Exposure had already said what it needed to say in previous seasons. And now we're getting a hodgepodge of content that often lacks vision or purpose. A distraction from what is ultimately this season's primary focus. And in some sense, the remaining loose end. Joel's departure. Which brings me to the Joel and Maggie storyline. Their trip to Russia. Or rather being stuck on a plane. They spend a lot of their time arguing and analyzing their time together and the resolution they come to isn't all that convincing. It is funny how much people are smoking on the plane, which perhaps foreshadows how Joel and Maggie's relationship is going up in smoke, lost to the haze of memory, the fog of time, and the mist of what could have been. Everything changes for Joel after this episode. Newcomers to the show will soon find out. Outside of wrapping up Joel's hero's journey, if you will, Northern Exposure didn't really need an ending like many other shows require. This show was ultimately about community, the journey, and not about arriving anywhere. And in this case, Joel's departure. Prior to season six, they had already produced nearly 90 episodes. So again, maybe they didn't have much more to say. As a friend remarked at one of our watch parties, there's a Northern Exposure episode for every characteristic of the human condition. So while we wade through the muddy waters of season six, One can think of all the ways they could have handled this season better, but they did seem to experiment quite a bit, so you got to give them that. They pushed the magical realism boundaries, but taking risks like that would often produce a great episode followed by one or two filled with half-baked ideas. We see that happen throughout this season. When they are on their game, some of the episodes are among their very best, but nearly all the weakest episodes in the entire series are from season six. Ultimately, the beautiful thing is we can start and end the show whenever we choose, because, in some sense, the end is also a beginning, in that we can always re-watch episodes out of order, chronologically, or watch a random standalone episode for certain occasions or moods. Northern Exposure could have ended with Far So Good, or Dinner at 7.30, or The Quest. Uh, I love The Quest. Or end simply how it did. Perhaps the series should have ended with Season 5, when Joel says he has truly become a Sicilian. What I've come to learn is you can choose your own Northern Exposure ending. For the magic continues, forever and always. Over and out.
2: All right. That was Tenali with his thoughts on full upright position. And I like that he gives us like a brief overview of his entire encapsulation of what Northern Exposure should be. So he says that like, you know, one to four, that's where the magic is. Five, maybe we could end ended that there. Six, got to admit, not as, <laughs> not as much highs. And uh, he came in with his honest opinions that he felt that... Some of the plot lines here weren't working, like Maurice's plot line, Chris's plot line, and shoot, even uh, even Joel's to a degree. Yeah, I wrote down a couple of things. He said, like, you know, not completely convinced
1: by the the resolution of Joel and Maggie's plot line, the proposal, which I I was asking you about that, Charles, when we recorded. It's like, what do you think? Did that feel, ultimately, I think I bought it. I've, the chemistry played it for me. But yeah, we definitely had, at least I definitely had my reservations being like, Is this the right move at that moment? Does that make sense? And one thing I thought was really uh, funny well, the thought that it inspired in my head, but Tenali says uh, of Chris's storyline that it kind of falls flat and it is maybe Tenali's least favorite art project that Chris does. And it got me thinking I don't know if there's any way we could do this like in the spur of the moment, but a tier list of Chris's art projects. At least, could you tell me a favorite, Charles? Do you have like a favorite or least favorite art project from Chris?
2: Well, I, I'm with Tanali here. And I, like, I, I think we've expressed this where we thought this is kind of a wacky experiment that Chris was trying to do here with the, yeah. the electricity, both from the actual experiment itself. I was like, I, I think this guy's just trying to electrocute himself. <laughs> and the thematic <laughs> thing where we, we, we had an interpretation of it. Me and you both provided what we thought what it could have meant Mm -hmm. when you extrapolated it into a larger meaning. But even still, I felt that there were better ways to execute it. So on both of those fronts, I'm not a huge fan of Chris trying to do electricity right here. As for one that I I, I favor, I mean, it's a little bit of a cop-out, but I'm pretty sure the piano one's like crowd favorite. The fling. Yeah. The fling is just kind of the
1: best. I mean, there's the... uh, Ooh, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it's called Northern Lights, um, where he does the the light oh, installation that's like very that one pretty with totally like Innu music. Yeah. You know, some I bet there's a lot more art projects than we actually realize are. It's like, oh, that was that could be classified as an art project that Chris did, mm-hmm. but like this one, I, I agree. Like the the actual experiment, the project itself is not that highly regarded for me. I I don't like. The electricity, uh, magnetism stuff, but the concept behind it and the like theory behind it, I really appreciated. And there's another one that I'm thinking of, really didn't like the um, product, but the thought around it I liked. It was in that episode, Might Makes Right, with like the giant metal sculpture of the dust mite.
2: Oh, but,
1: yeah. <laughs> but I like that Chris is, when he's talking about that, he probably references a lot of different artistic ideas, but the one that stuck with me was, um, I, I can't even remember who he, re- it's a famous artist he references, but the idea being, it's not about the, what you see, it's what you don't see, like the negative space surrounding the object and mm-hmm. the dust might being like, they're always thousands around, they, they are the negative space, even if we can't see them. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if I go that far, but I just like love the idea of like visualizing the space around what would normally be the subject, changing that and making the the surrounding negative space the subject. I thought that was a brilliant thing to think about, even if the resultant project is just a giant <laughs> metal test fight. <laughs> yeah, I, that would be fun if, uh, if I could ever track it down. We could try to do a, we if I could ever list all of them, but try to do like a tier list or maybe that'll be a great question to to ask the listeners.
2: That's a future that's a Patreon episode right there. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you kind of talked about this, Charles, uh, how Tonali is honest and mentions that this is not like overall the best episode. Tonali also says that season six, uh, for very many factors, he he lists a lot of different factors, but it, it is quite a messy season. We know that Rob Morrow is contract dispute, maybe leaving the show. Uh, I, I don't think we've run into it yet, Charles, but the show does change Um not the air dates, but like the day of the week. The, what would you call that? Yeah, the time slot. The time slot. It changes time slot, mid-season here. I mean, there's a lot that we will see as we keep going, Charles, that are going to kind of be throwing this off the rails in a way. Uh, something that Tanali says towards the end of their commentary is that uh, everything changes for Joel after this episode. Obviously, we have a huge milestone. Joel proposes to Maggie, we know, Charles. We talked about this that Joel doesn't stay in the series. What do you think is going to happen? I I think it. I wonder if it is even going to happen next episode. Like, what could happen immediately?
2: Do you have any guess? uh I, I guess like more friendlier ones, like ones that aren't going to like absolutely destroy the status quo. It's like maybe Ed gets like a job at another place. Ed leaves. Um, that
1: would be. Not like, yeah, crushing. not like the
2: show, not, of course, but like, you the know, these Ann store, like, yeah. you know, maybe someone else goes to work, so maybe Ed goes towards something else. Um, highly doubt anything's going to happen between Shelly and Hauling and their relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't think the show would be that crazy to be like, Shelly gets pregnant again. <laughs> um, if they do, you know, props to them. Tenali like,
1: did mention, like, you know, they, they uh, I wrote it down. What did they say? That the show experimented quite a bit. In the sixth season. So maybe we've seen some of that, but um, hmm. maybe there's a lot more of that to come. A lot more e- experimentation. Oh.
2: Well, like, I mean, the obvious answer is like a, a new, new people come in.
1: New cast.
2: Yeah. Like, new like ca- we had yeah. Mike
1: Monroe in season four. It's not unlike the show to just, especially if Joel's going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the most someone, obvious Is someone going to fill his place? Yeah. I don't know how I missed that. Yeah. You went straight for Ed. Cause that's like the pathos. That's like the thing you love. You don't want to see Ed leave.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, otherwise, I can't imagine that there is a lot of status quo that's going to make abruptly shift. That's the only one in which I can think of that's going to have a, not a large consequence on the entire town because he was just somebody who assorted stuff in Ann's store. Whereas if you said like, hey, um, Maurice like sells his house, starts becoming a farmer. I mean, that's like a giant shift. Yeah. Like, plot lines no longer work after that. Tanali did mention that
1: uh, scene between Eugene and Maurice here in this episode at The Brick being a, a standout, a pretty great scene for this episode. And we talked about that, Charles, but it is kind of a, um, a beautifully touching scene and it's sort of the perfect uh, the perfect moment to happen, the perfect argument to show Maurice whenever uh, Eugene leaves the break and hops in the truck with his family. We just see the sort of differences between what Maurice is trying to strive for and what Eugene has.
2: Yeah, I believe Tenali said a line about fame and fortune, mm-hmm. saying that that couldn't be the couldn't be the ticket out.
1: Yeah, and uh, I like how Tenali sort of talks about you know the ending of the series, and the ending is sort of like a new beginning. You can always go back and rewatch. I mean, I think they said that they're currently doing like a weekly watch party mm-hmm. uh, with an with all new audience, or like a lot of people watching it are new. So that's always interesting to, I mean, we do it all the time, Charles, but introduce someone to the show. But obviously, to go week after week, uh, I I love the feedback. People are saying it's a breath of fresh air, a show that makes you think and gives you time to reflect. That's something I used to notice a lot when we were just starting this podcast, Charles, and I was rewatching the episodes, is that there is a lot of moments where it just holds really long at the end of a scene, or it's just kind of empty moments that, I really do feel like are there to let you think and process.
2: Yeah, definitely. You get a little bit less of that as the show progresses. But I would agree that like there are a lot of moments, especially in season one and season two, where it doesn't cut immediately. So you're left hanging with the characters a lot. I don't know why this just occurred to my mind, but I think that it would be very fun to do large watch parties of Northern Exposure. Because oftentimes when we watch it, uh, it's uh, it's either just me or it's me and you or if we're very lucky it's me you and Jay at the same time. But I think that it is probably a unique atmosphere that comes whenever you watch Northern Exposure with like five or six people just like hanging in the same chat. Yeah, just like watching Northern Exposure. Like that's got to be a different feel. We should definitely go check out uh, the K Bear Five Seventy.
1: They do I think they do on Sundays. Sometimes they'll do like watch parties. But I mean, even apart from that, we got to get some friends like together. I think there's one episode. What's the episode that was like my birthday where I had like my, I forced oh, my friends to watch. What episode was that? It's the one with the lake monster. Yeah, um, that one's such a good episode. Oh, uh, Fish Story. Yes, Fish uh, Story. But that was insane to watch. I mean, obviously we had been... Uh, lubed up. Yeah. Uh, we had had a little bit to drink, but uh, no, um, just to finish out Tenali's thoughts here, I like that they say the, the series could have ended with Shofar So Good, Dinner at 7.30, or even The Quest, which is an episode we haven't gotten to yet, Charles. But yeah, I mean, we talked about this at, in our premiere episode, Dinner at 7.30. The more I think about it, I think that's a great uh, series ending. But I mean, I'm still, I'm still open to, to thinking about like what would be a good ending point for the series. And I'd be curious to see, Charles, if you can find one as we watch season six. Well, that was Tanali's thoughts on full upright position. Once again, wow. Thank you so much for turning that around incredibly fast. And we just really enjoyed listening to your thoughts. Thanks for presenting that to us. And Charles, we're going to be back next week for season six, episode eight, Up River. I remember, um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. Up River.
2: I'm assuming it has something to do with the body of water, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think this is funny. I don't think we've ever, because the way we had normally been recording these is uh, we've been banking them. So we had watched a bunch yeah. of the episodes before. This is one you haven't actually seen yet at the time of recording. Oh,
2: please let somebody go on a canoe trip. I think that's, that's that would God. sound so fun. We need yeah, a canoe. that sounds so fun.
1: I think you're pretty accurate here. I
2: got it? Oh, sweet. I think
1: you, yeah, I mean, part of it. So we're going to be talking about that next week. I'll see you then, Charles.
2: All right, I'll see you then.
1: Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to b Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Tenali for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.